If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. For those of you who are visiting with us today, uh, welcome. Uh, our church congregation has been going through a Bible reading program. We've been working through uh, the entire Bible in the year. And I've been picking a passage from the week's readings to preach from. That's what I'm doing again this morning. Although 2 Samuel 7 uh, is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, I'm not going to be here next week, Lord willing. And this chapter really is the heart of both First and Second Samuel. I mean, First and Second Samuel aren't really two books; it's one book. Uh, and this is the center of the theology. It's the center of sort of the arc of the narrative. This is the most important chapter uh, in both books. So, Second Samuel, chapter seven. This is the word of God. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far. 
And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, You have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Before we start looking at this passage together, let's pray. Father, there really is uh, no other God besides you. There is no one like you. And as David came into your presence in response to your revelation and blessing uh, this morning, we unite our hearts and minds together in prayer to bless your name, to honor you as the living God who is faithful to his covenant promises, who is loyal to his own word, and who loves his people. And Father, we appeal to you this morning for an outpouring of your love and grace. We ask that you will work in us, Lord, uh, individually, but also collectively as the body of Jesus Christ in this place, so that we will more accurately and fittingly represent and embody and experience the love of Christ uh, to each other and to the world. I pray, Lord, that you will open your word. I pray that you'll give us clarity. I pray that you will uh, give us uh, clear minds and open hearts, and I pray that by your Spirit you will apply this word, uh, this passage, uh, to everyone here. You, Lord, who are sovereign, know the circumstances of all of our weeks. You know uh, the inclinations of our hearts. You know the thoughts of our minds. Uh, You know the things that crowd in upon us, that distract us. You know the things uh, that we have been involved in which are wrong. You know our joys and our victories. You know everything about every one of us as we gather this morning. And so we pray that your spirit will take your word, your truth, 
and apply it to every one of our hearts in our own unique circumstances as we need it, not because we are worthy of being blessed, but because you are worthy of having a holy people who bless your name. So do this work for your namesake, for we ask it in the name and character of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, really is the heart of the Samuel corpus. And so one of the questions we have to ask before we get here, or before we start working through this text, is how did we get here? What are some of the movements in the text which bring us along to this point? Uh, first, you'll remember that First uh, Samuel begins really in the time of the judges. You, you don't have a king. And so the horrific nature of the closing of the book of Judges is what brings you into 1 Samuel. That's about the era that you're in. And at the end of Judges, you can't help but notice that the Levites, those who are supposed to be taking care of the tabernacle, are the ones who are leading the way in terms of depravity. You're supposed to remember that when you start reading Samuel. Eli's the high priest. And how holy is his family? The problems of the judges are, and Levites are carrying on in the high priest's family. Eli's sons are, are wicked and are abusing the sacrificial system. They, they care nothing for morality, they care nothing for holiness, they care nothing for God. This is why the Ark of the Covenant is lost in that first battle uh, in the beginning of 1 Samuel. So what you have then is a continuation of the corruption in judges into Samuel. The people think the solution is the king. Now, God had promised Abraham in covenant that kings would come from his bodies. Deuteronomy, or from his body. Deuteronomy 17 had given instructions for what the king of Israel would be like. So God has already tacitly given permission for Israel to have a king. That's why he will have David as king. Kingship isn't the problem. The problem is the motivation of a corrupt and wicked people. We want a king like the other nations around us. The whole point of going into the promised land was to not be like the other nations around them. Their motivation for wanting a king is that they can be like the other nations around them. We want a king who will lead us into battle. Okay. Now, they go out, and, and Saul is the one who is picked. Now, Saul, interesting note, is physically impressive. He, he's a head taller than anyone else. Now, that seems wonderful, except for this. If you are here last week, you may remember that in Hannah's song, I said that there's a metaphor that's used, which doesn't come through in translation, which is actually essential for understanding the book. In 1 Samuel 2, 3, do not keep talking so proudly. Do not be arrogant. It's actually a metaphor. The word that's used is tall. Don't be tall. Now, it's interesting. We have that same kind of reference for, like, the big shot, the big man on campus. Someone who's, who's sort of you know, impressive in their own eyes. That's the metaphor, the, being tall, being tall in your own eyes, being a big shot in your own eyes. was sort of a Hebrew metaphor. So don't be arrogant. That's what it means. But it's metaphorically brought across. Don't be tall. Israel wants a king just like the nations around them. And they're really impressed. Hey, this guy's really tall. But what happens the very first time 
that Israel's tall champion meets someone who's even taller. That's Goliath. Goliath isn't a metaphor for your own problems in your life. He's actually someone who's more arrogant than Saul. He's taller than Saul. And the whole reason they wanted Saul was because he was a big guy who could lead them into battle. Now the other team has a bigger guy and the king's not leading them anywhere. And this little shepherd boy. Do not judge by appearance. Don't judge on the basis of physical stature. For the Lord looks at the heart. Something that we all applaud and all agree with, and yet run around in our society glorifying the appearance. Judging everyone on the basis of appearance and and working as hard as we can and spending obscene amounts of money for nothing but the sake of appearance. The Lord wants nothing to do with that. The Lord looks at the heart. Now David goes out, slays Goliath in the name of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the the, the Lord who's sort of the general of the army of heaven. And then Goliath is beheaded. Goliath becomes significantly shorter in his death. I think that's actually significant. Hold on to that. Now later, everything's going badly with Saul. Uh, and you know, he knows that David's the anointed king. David is successful. The Lord is giving him success. Even Jonathan, Saul's son, has a covenant of love uh, and friendship with David. And Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. He sees this downward spiral to the point where he ends up consulting a witch, uh, a medium at Endor. And, and he's, Saul himself is given a command, all the witches, all, no magic, no occult activity. And so the witch at Endor says, you know, listen, Saul, or she says, you know, Saul, listen, Saul has driven out all, everyone. Why are you coming to me? Why are you asking for a medium? I don't know a medium. You're in the wrong place. And he says, no, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it spirit of Samuel, she realizes that it's Saul. And then the text says, Saul fell full length on the ground. It's our English translation. Literally, the text says in Hebrew, Saul fell tall on the ground. The tall man, the arrogant man, who in 1 Samuel 15 builds a monument in his own honor. Although Samuel says, once you were small in your own eyes... There's been a trajectory of growth and arrogance and pride and violence in Saul. At the end, he falls tall on the ground, goes into battle, dies, and what happens to him after death? Same thing as Goliath. He's beheaded. The man who was one head taller than anyone else in Israel loses that status at the end, uh, reduced in humility. This, This song in Hannah... You can bring the high low. You can exalt the poor, or you can exalt the humble, the arrogant, the tall, you will bring low. You see that running all through the book. David is king, and here David says to God, Nathan, I want to build a house for God. The word for house in Hebrew will be translated as temple, but it's also, as all through this text, there's a play on words. It's can either be a building or it can be a household, like a family. So we talk about, the, we, we can use this language. We talk about the, you know, the house of David and we refer to his lineage, people. Right? So God, David says to God, I want to build you a house, meaning temple. And God's going to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house, meaning people, meaning dynasty. That's sort of the play on words that runs 
uh, through the text. Now, David himself, if you be very careful with this, I don't have much time to defend this view. David himself, all through the text, if you read the text carefully, the amazing thing uh, isn't that sort of God loves David because David's so wonderful. The amazing thing is that God loves David, even though David's pretty much a rotter all through this text. He engages in realpolitik, that is, he's making all these political alliances. He, he acts at different times like a petty crime mafia boss, extorting people. He's, he slaughters countless people. He puts all kinds of people to death, uh, even when it's not in warfare. Uh, it's adultery with best people. There's, there's, just, there's all kinds of things going on with David. Just like with Abraham, just like with Isaac, just like with Jacob. Again, part of the problem is we've trained ourselves through Sunday school interpretations of text that whoever had faith must be some sort of moral hero in everything that they did. Not the case. Not even remotely the case. Uh, so when we read David's life, the amazing thing isn't that, uh, you know, that he was so wonderful. The amazing thing is that God was so gracious. The patriarchs, it's a continual testimony to the grace of God, to the love of God, that he works with such unpromising material. Now, at the end of the day, retrospectively, you'll be told that David was a man after God's own heart. And you index that, index that against his life, and it's hard to figure out how. Well, the reality is there's one thing that David never does. David, unlike all the other kings of Israel and Judah, David never worships an idol. He never worships any god except the Lord God. When he sins, which he does a lot and in big ways, he still knows he sinned against God. Against you and you only have I sinned. He loves God passionately. In fact, everything David does is passionate. You know, he's, there are some people who are incapable of doing anything in half measures. You know, it's been sometimes said, you have to be very, very careful with this, only, only a great individual can sin greatly. You know, you know, most of us are so mediocre that everything we do is going to be mediocre. Our sins are mediocre, you know, our triumphs are mediocre. But there are some people who are just, they're so full of life, they do such big things, everything they do is done on a huge scale. And that's David. Every single thing David does is done on a huge scale. All of his heart, mind, soul, and strength thrown into it. There's zeal there. I want to be very, very careful with this. There's a sense in which there's a rightness to that. Not to the sin part. But there's a rightness to the zeal and the passion in that. I think you know, one thing that God must utterly damn must be apathy. Just how can you, you live in a universe created by God where, where there is a God, where, where there's this world that he's made, where there's people who, who, are, who are his image bearers, when, when there is a gospel, uh, and there's, there's truth and there's value and there's meaning. The, the, the one thing you think that God must really, really, really detest is apathy. There, there has to be caring, like deep, passionate love and zeal. There has to be that. Anyway, that's not from the text. That's not good preaching. The Davidic covenant. Go and tell my servant David. 
This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? He says, listen, I haven't, I haven't lived in a house this whole time. I've been perfectly content you know, to be in this tabernacle, this, this portable tent. And we've looked at the tabernacle when we were looking at Exodus. You're not the one to build me this temple. Someone else will. Rather, verse 8, what I'm going to do, David, is I'm going to remind you where I took you from. I took you from you know, looking after the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people. I've cut off your enemies from before you. Now, this is what I'm going to do for you, David. I will make your name great. That's a promise to Abraham. This is carrying forward covenantal promises. Like Abraham, I will make your name great. In fact, what God is really doing here is implicitly saying, I will use the greatness of my name to establish your name as great as well. Not only that, but I will provide a place for my people and plant them in a home of their own, and wicked people will not oppress them. So you have three major promises here. David, I will make your name great. I will establish our people. I'll give them a place where they can be planted, where they can flourish, and I will give you rest. There will be rest from your enemies. Then the heart of the covenant is starting in 11b. The Lord declares you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Here's that plan word. You want to build me a house, David, you don't understand. I don't need you to build me anything. I will have a house built for me when I'm ready. I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. You need me to do this for you, not the other way around. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So a temple for God will be built. But not by David, by David's son. And his throne will be, his kingdom will be established forever. Not only that, God is going to adopt him. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You get this uh, celebrated in Psalm 2 and other places. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging and inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. So this son, the first instance, Solomon, this, this Davidic lineage of kings, will do what's wrong. The text is very clear about that. This person will sin, and God will chastise them. God will punish them. But his chesed, his covenant faithfulness, his love, his loving kindness or mercy, will never be taken away as it was taken away from Saul. Now, this is actually one of the heart, uh, this, this underlies the heart of the prayer in Psalm 51. When David said, you know, created me a clean heart, oh God, renew a right spirit in, within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I don't know why I know that in King James, but yeah, I do. Uh, don't take away your Holy Spirit. Well, why would David be worried about God withdrawing his Holy Spirit? That's exactly what happened with Saul. The Lord empowered Saul, like he empowered the judges with his spirit for a time to deliver Israel, but it wasn't a saving relationship. It was, were, it was empowerment for a task. And David, as he sins, looks look at his life and says, if the spirit can be taken away from Saul, the spirit can be taken away from me. Lord, don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. 
here, God is promising, your lineage, my covenant love and faithfulness will never be taken away from your line as I took it away from Saul. Now, just off to the side, in the new covenant, this side of Pentecost, where every believer knows the Lord, where everyone has their sins forgiven, they all know me from the least to the greatest. In this day, where, we are, where believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our, redemption, or our inheritance until our redemption, we, can, we have to transpose how you pray Psalm 51. We can quench and grieve the Spirit, but if we are believers, we can never lose the Spirit. The Spirit will never be taken away from us because the economy of the Spirit in the New Covenant era is different from it was in the Old. Your house and your kingdom will be endured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Again, this repetition, kingdom and throne forever. Now, ultimately, this whole covenant is going to drive you forward to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It does so not by functioning as an explicit verbal prophetic prediction. It does so by establishing a pattern. So, Solomon will sin. The Davidic kings will sin. They will be punished by God. But God's love will never be taken away. Their kingdom will endure forever. Jesus, born in the lineage of David, is the Son of God, I will be his Father, he will be my Son. He is the great Son of God, par excellence, and he never sins. So there are elements of this covenant which apply to David's immediate descendants, but which then find greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect king that Israel has always been longing for. He is David's son, but greater than David. He is the one who takes all the positives without any of the negatives. He brings nothing negative to the table. He brings nothing negative to the covenant relationship. He completely upholds the covenant with God, which is why he's able in his blood to inaugurate the new covenant, which every believer today uh, is under. It's a pattern fulfillment. Here's the covenant. Here's what it looks like with imperfect human representatives. But here's what it looks like when the perfect king shows up, the actual Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. His throne endures forever. I mean, there's only two ways to have a perpetual dynasty. One is to always have someone ready to to succeed the king who dies. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Endless generations. The other is to have a king who never dies. It's the only two ways you're ever going to have a perpetual kingdom. And we know it's the latter. Jesus is the fulfillment of this text. The throne is established forever because Jesus never dies. The king never abdicates. Nothing ever happens uh, to the king. I, I, I I will refrain from making any comments about the royal wedding yesterday and succession plans. We'll just move on. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, This is the response. This is a response to blessing. And I will say this too. Know this. David is amazed at what God has done for him. You've made me king. You've blessed me. You've promised this endless perpetual reign of my descendants. You're going to establish a throne and kingdom forever. If God did that for us today, we would probably be overawed. we'd probably be amazed at the grace and kindness of God that he would bless us in such categories. 
But you have to realize that this covenantal blessing to David is nothing, nothing compared to the covenant blessings that are yours in Christ. You would be an utter fool to exchange union with Christ and all the attendant blessings thereof for ruling over what really was a little petty kingdom in the global perspective with children who would sin a lot, be punished, but sit on this little tiny throne in a little tiny palace. The blessings that we have are are infinitely greater than these. So remember that in terms of your own response to God as you consider David's response here. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? That's helpful. That's what locates blessings. Who do we think we are? Who am I that God would know me? What's so special about me that the Lord of heaven and earth would care to enter into a relationship with me? What do I bring to the table relationally to someone who is infinite, perfect, and perfectly satisfied. The problem with us, of course, isn't that just that we're finite, it's that we're sinful. It's not just that we're small, it's that we're wicked. And so here David, very much unlike Saul, is not tall in his own eyes. Lord, who am I that you would do these things for me? And David doesn't even know that the Son of God incarnate is going to come and die for him. David doesn't even look back and say, and, and that's my name, my Savior's name is Jesus. David doesn't look back and read the Gospel of John and, and see the agony of Christ on the cross. He doesn't know about Easter and the empty tomb. He doesn't know about the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. He doesn't know about the new covenant. Uh, that prophecy is given you know, long after David's God. In, all David has is this, this temporal, ble- this blessing of God, this relationship with God, he, he, which, which pales into almost insignificance compared to what we know, and he's still a who am I that you would do this for me? How much more for those who, who come to the foot of the cross and, and see the Son of God incarnate dying for their sins? Who am I, God? Really just, just a damned rebel that you have died for, that you have sought out that you have come and and purchased with your own life's blood. Who am I that you have brought me this far, that you have brought me in redemption to forgiveness of sins, that you have established me in the security of eternal life, that you are building a place for me in glory, that you are building me for glory, that you're working and renovating me, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is mine forever, that I'm part of this family forever, that I'm part of the body of Christ forever, that that one day there's going to be a brand new heavens and earth without a curse because there is no sin. It's the home of righteousness. 
And one day I'm going to be there. If I went there now, it doesn't exist, because I haven't reached the end of time just yet. But if it did, and I was able to go there, on my very best day, here in this world, I would carry so much corruption into that place, it would ruin it forever. So it's not only that I get to go there, it's that God is going to so work in me that I'll actually fit in there. It's the home of righteousness. It's literally where righteousness dwells. So only the righteous can be there. Only things that are righteous will be there. Which means that if you're there, you will be righteous on that day. Who am I that God is making me righteous to live in a new heavens and new earth with Him forever at the cost of His Son's blood? Sovereign Lord, who am I that you've brought me this far and that you're taking me all the way to glory? You've spoken about my the future of my house, even though I'm only a mere human. What more can I say to you, David says? You know me. You know me better than I know myself. But for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing. That's an amazing thing, too. What God does is for the sake of his word and his will. If you are in Christ, the reason you are in Christ is because of the word and will of God. If you are saved, it's because God has set his love upon you from before the creation of the world. He has sent his son to die for you. He has brought to you the gospel. He has opened your heart to understand the gospel. And he has empowered you by his spirit in response to truth to humble yourself, which you would never do naturally. And submit yourself to Jesus Christ. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing. Great thing. I was going to say, David, you don't even, what you're talking about isn't great. It's small compared to what we have. Lord, you have done this great thing, this incredible thing for sinners like us. And you've made it known to me how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. That is a categorical statement. That is actually a summation of systematic theology. There is no one like you. That's almost all you need to know. If you want to know about God, that's where you start. There's no one like him. He is categorically, utterly, absolutely unique. There is no God but you. You're alone in deity. You've redeemed your people. There's no one like your people that you've redeemed. You've redeemed us to make a name for yourself by driving out their other gods. Verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your, your servant. And it says, Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. A couple things there which are so helpful and healthy for us spiritually. You can tell a lot about your spiritual health by your prayers. Now, I'm not suggesting that you try to evaluate them. It's kind of depressing. This morning I only got a 9.5 out of 10. You know, so I'm not saying you should self-analyze your own prayers and evaluate them. Do you, am I doing a good job or not? But the things that come out, 
if you're just opening up your heart, it can be a, sometimes a diagnostic of your spiritual health. I mean, certainly what, one big place to start would be, do you pray? Uh, we will make no assumptions that people do. Do you pray? So how do you pray? Do as you promised, Lord, so that I can be blessed. That is probably the ethos that underlines a lot of our prayer life. Do as you have promised so that I can be happy. Do as you have said so that I can experience what I want to experience in the time frame in which I want to experience it in. Which, by the way, is now. Lord, do as you have said so that I... But that's not what he says. Do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Do our prayers of response to God look like that? It's how Jesus taught us how to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's, it's God. It's your name, your kingdom, your will before you even begin to talk about yourself. And yet so often for us, the prayers are, are more about, Lord, it's, it's my comfort. Lord, a, a little bit more money. Lord, a, a little bit of this. It's allergy season. Help my reactant to, to kick in quickly or, or whatever it is. But here the focus is on the name of God, his praise, his glory. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. In other words, we pray, David here is praying, Lord, bless me so that other people will see how great you are and that you are a real God. And do we pray, that? Lord, bless me, put your hand on my life so that others will see you. It's an evangelistic focus. It's a prophetic focus. It's a revelatory focus. Lord, bless me so that you are revealed in glory and other people will see how great you are so they can know you too. That's how we should pray. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Interesting that David finds courage to address God this way because of the previous promises of God. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And in a world where people's words don't mean anything, that's a balm for the soul. That, that, that's healing for our spirits. I mean, you, you know, you, you can actually tell. You can tell how, how diluted words are in terms of their meaning. And you can tell how dishonest a society is on the basis, part, one of the ways you can tell, how pervasively dishonest a society is when anything that's ever worth doing has to be put in writing as a written contract so you have proof that, the, that you can hold someone's feet to the fire and say, you said you'd do this. Whereas in any kind of honest society, in any kind of moral universe, all you would need would be the verbal affirmation because people will stand by their words. 
You don't need, you shouldn't need a contract to come along to people and say, look, you need to fulfill the terms of your contract because people should feel that moral sensibility where of course they're going to do what they said. You know, you don't need it in writing because you trust people. The fact that every, everything of any significance in our world at all has to be written out and signed with witnesses shows how pervasively dishonest our society is. But God's not like that. God puts things in writing because we don't have good memories. He doesn't put things in writing for his memory. He doesn't put things in writing so that, because he might not do it. He puts things in writing for us so we can go back to it again and again and again and again and read and remind ourselves of how great his promises are. But he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. That's who he is. He was faithful to this promise. He said he was going to make David's name great. You realize that in the global perspective, you realize in the global perspective, even at this time, Israel was nothing. It was this little insignificant, small population, small geography. It was the only significance in it was that it was the crossroads of the travel routes of the major superpowers who were trading. And so they would always, that's why Israel was always being dominated by other nations, because they were convenient in terms of a thoroughfare. That was their claim to fame. They were nothing. Nothing. It is preposterous in every way for God to say to David, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest people on the face of the earth, to David? There's been in historical records for many, many centuries. People who were critical about the Bible would say, oh, come on, David's an invented character. His name doesn't show up anywhere in the Assyrian records or the Babylonian records or the Egyptian records. He's a nobody. He's an invented king. He's not an invented king. He's the king of this little petty little nation state. Israel is nothing in the global perspective, even in David's day. And God says, I will make your name like the greatest na- the names of the greatest people on the face of the earth. Yeah, right. If the Egyptians had heard that, they would have laughed all day. But 3,000 years later, I defy you to name the name of the Pharaoh at David's time. I defy you to name the name of one king who reigned in a contemporary way with David over the superpowers. David's name, in terms of world history, has become one of the greatest names, like the greatest men of all time. In fact, quite literally, the greatest and most famous man of his generation. That defies sociological common sense. But God said he'd do it. And when God says he's going to do something, he does it. Because he's a covenant-keeping, faithful God. If God cares so much about his word that he'll make someone like David famous, if he tells us our sins are forgiven in Christ, our sins are forgiven in Christ. If he tells us, you have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to worry about. If he tells us that he loves us, he loves us. doesn't matter if you feel lovable. You're not. It doesn't matter if you feel like he loves you. He does. He, doesn't, he just keeps his word. Thank God. Literally. He keeps his word. And if you actually ever, actually ever really read the word of God, The promises in here? What God promises you in Christ?
It's too good to be true. If it was anyone else, if it was any other being, you'd say that they were lying, but not God. God always keeps his word. We should thank him for it because his word and his promises and his blessings are almost literally unimaginable. David praised God in light of what God had said to him. Uh, We're going to take an opportunity, we have an opportunity now to join together in song, uh, praising God for what he's done for us.